we are still seeing this narrative of sort of the race for the Arctic and right. the battle for the resources, as you point to. Yeah. Uh, but as you, as you also state, the, the fact of the matter is that this is a, a well-regulated, well-governed region. Welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. This week's podcast is about an area of the world that is too often forgotten here in the U.S., the Arctic. As the ice melts and temperatures rise due to climate change, no part of the world has changed more than the high Arctic. What was once impassable ice throughout the year has become an ocean increasingly open to transport, energy exploration, and military operations. That has brought headlines about a scramble for the Arctic or a new Arctic Cold War or other such hype. To learn more about this, we talked with State Secretary Auden Halverson, responsible for Arctic affairs in the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He and I agreed that headlines aside, the Arctic should be seen as an area of cooperation, not one of competition. He even downplayed some of Russia's military expansion, saying that's their right, even as we agreed that NATO must also respond. He was less charitable about China's self-definition as a near-Arctic state, but also welcomed them to observe the region. Key takeaway for me was about the importance of multilateralism and international cooperation in the Arctic. The U.S. must listen to our Norwegian allies and work through multilateral institutions. If you're interested in learning more about the Arctic, go to the show notes page on americansecurityproject.org, where you'll see our extensive list of Arctic resources, including testimony I gave to the House Foreign Affairs Committee on the subject, and a map of Russian military bases. And now, let's get into the conversation. State Secretary Auden Haverson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Well, we're really excited to have you on here to talk about Norway's perception of Arctic security and Arctic strategy. Why don't we start with the 2019 report released by your government called Norway's Arctic Strategy Between Geopolitics and Social Development. So you listed five priority areas in that strategy, international cooperation, knowledge development, business development, infrastructure, and environmental protection. All of them are important, but, you know, that we're an American think tank, we're most interested in international cooperation and and your perception on that. What are your priorities for international cooperation, both with allies, and then then we'll go into the Russians uh, over the border? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think the, both the title and the five priorities mentioned uh, in that strategy from, from some years back really sums up the Norwegian approach to the Arctic. And uh, let me start off with a, with a few words on the Norwegian Arctic, which really forms our approach to, yes. to the region and also our approach to international cooperation and the international dynamics uh, in the region as such. Because I think Looking at the Arctic outside of servers really have this, this impression of this uh, huge, unpopulated, white space, pristine nature, uh, polar bears and, and everything. And those things are true. But the Norwegian Arctic is, is actually much more. Yes. Uh, this is, if you look at the three northernmost counties of, of Norway, this is 35% of Norway's land area. Our waters and marine maritime areas of responsibility located above the polar circle are, are 80% of, of, our, of those waters in, in total. It's okay. a huge area, almost yeah. as big as the Mediterranean. Yeah. And this is an area where people live. Yeah. More than 10% of Norway's population live above the Arctic Circle. That's almost 600,000 people. 
And it's an area where you have uh, infrastructure development, where you have universities, you have major urban centers, and also an area where an aspect, for example, such as broadband penetration is better than a lot of regions in Central Europe. Mm-hmm. So this is really a sort of modern, vibrant place uh, in Norway with innovative businesses, sustainable resource development. Uh, and it's really sort of making the connection between that domestic level uh, and the policies on the domestic level and the dynamics and the relationships on the international level that is at the core of Norwegian high north and Arctic policies. I think that's an important point when comparing it, say, with, with the American or Canadian Arctic, where it is not very populated, there's not a lot of people, it's, it's a very different Arctic. And, and also that your point about the, your Arctic waters, of course, along the Norwegian coastline is pretty much ice-free all year round. So that's a, a very different strategic environment, a very different way of looking at it than, than, of course, the Alaskan Arctic or the Canadian Arctic. Yeah. Oh, I think a good point on the climate as well. Of course, the, the Gulf Stream really provides for ice-free access to, to the Atlantic uh, year, year round. Yes. And that is also, of course, part of why these waters have been strategically important going back to even to the Second World War and, and yeah. to the Cold War, uh, not the least. Yes. And yes, why they remain uh, strategically important today. Yeah. And open, open sea lanes and an and, uh, and important way forward. So that's, that is an important thing. And, and also along those lines, just around your, your seacoast there is, of course, your border with Russia. And around there is also probably the most populated area of the Russian Arctic as well, for much the same reasons. And also the home of the Russian Northern Fleet and a lot of Russia's security operations, their military operations. How have you seen as... In, in recent years, the, the Russian military tempo has gone up. What have you seen as a Norwegian government official vis-a-vis Russia and, and how this has changed recently? Of course, when, when it comes to the strategic outlook, as you point to, the Russian submarine bases on the Kola Peninsula are sort of at the very core of that. Mm-hmm. And that shapes, I would say, the, the geostrategic dimensions of, of the region as such. And that is, of course, why uh, the military aspects of the Arctic remain crucially important uh, as well. On the Russian side, we have seen, I would say, an, an increase in training and exercises, improved capabilities, the modernization of Russian uh, forces that have taken place sort of across the board uh, have also been very visible in the high north, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to the Northern Fleet's uh, maritime capabilities in the form of new submarines and, and also surface combatants combined with, uh, with new missile technology. That is a development that we have been very conscious of from the Norwegian side for, for many years. Mm-hmm. And it has also been driving our security dialogue with the US and in NATO, I would say for at least the last decade. That is why Norway has been a, a keen proponent of the changes to, to NATO's uh, command structure, for example. Mm-hmm. We have been very strong proponents of the modernization of NATO's maritime doctrine which is highly relevant in these areas. And also very glad to see the, the reestablishment of Joint Forces Command in Norfolk and also yep. the U.S. Second Fleet, which will have, will have this geographic area of, of responsibility. And that has been a, a key priority for us in our dialogue with, with allies and partners and, and in NATO. So looking at, at the, uh, the Russian activity as such, of course, they have a right to, 
full right to to modernize their uh, their armed forces uh, as all countries do of course and also to exercise and to train but we are seeing the same pattern when it comes to unnoticed snap exercises the level of activity has increased over the last years uh, also in uh, in the maritime domain with some some major exercises uh, especially uh, last year yeah uh, and also the the major sapad exercise in in uh, 2017 so uh, we don't see the Russian activity as you know, specifically directed towards Norway. But given the geography, we are sort of at the, at the very center of it when it comes right. to the impact on, on the region as such. Uh, so we are you know, following developments very closely. We have increased uh, our own situational awareness, our intelligence capabilities. We are investing very heavily in new modern platforms such as the P-8 maritime patrol aircraft, new mm-hmm. submarines. These are investments that are, are in the pipeline. And we, uh, we like to, to think of ourselves as NATO's uh, eyes and ears in the north, sort of following the developments uh, very closely. Right. And of course, this, which I said, the, the renewed understanding of the strategic importance of the region was also one of the drivers behind the, the Trident Juncture 2018 exercise, mm-hmm. which was the biggest NATO exercise in this region for 30 years. Yeah. So we are seeing a, a renewed uh, attention uh, from allies and also a, a renewed understanding of, of the strategic importance of, of the region. Yeah. But I, I would also add another dimension, if I, if I may, when it comes Please, to yeah. Russia. Because you know, we, Russia is our neighbor. We have been neighbors in peace for, uh, for centuries. And for Norway, it is important to maintain, you know, on the one side, the, the security vigilance, so to say. On the other side, to engage where we can uh, in a sort of practical, pragmatic uh, dialogue and cooperation. That goes to, to a political dialogue on all levels. It goes to well-established formats for practical cooperation on issues such as uh, nuclear safety, environmental protection, fisheries management, mm-hmm. which we do jointly with the Russians in the Barents Sea, mm-hmm. working very well. And also on the sort of people-to-people and cultural level. There's a lot of exchange across the border in, in the north. So it's a, it's a two-pronged approach, so to say, uh, in engaging uh, where we can, yeah. but still sort of remaining conscious of the security aspects. I think that's an important point because so often we hear, oh, the Russians are militarizing and, and we have to respond. But, but of course, the Arctic has been a zone of cooperation, a zone of peace, and, and it's important to, to build that out. Norway, it was what, 10 years ago that Norway and Russia agreed to their, the maritime border. So there's no disputes over who owns what area and, and everything like that. So it's, there is a defined legal regime yes. for how to, how to deal with this. And I think that's an important point that we shouldn't just think that there's going to be a new war for resources in the Arctic or something like this because of climate change. The ice is melting, so everybody's running up there and, and going to stake their claim for oil and gas and everything like that. And that's just not the case that, that we've seen, right? Oh, I, I couldn't agree more, and it's such an important point, because we are still seeing this narrative of sort of the race for the Arctic and right. the battle for the resources, as you point to. Yeah. Uh, but as you, as you also state, the, the fact of the matter is that this is a, a well-regulated, well-governed region. Mm-hmm. Norway settled its maritime dispute with, with Russia, uh, which had been ongoing for, for decades, mm-hmm. uh, in 2009, sort mm-hmm. of delimiting the, the maritime border. We've had our continental shelf before the UN Commission. That has been cleared out. And mm-hmm. all the Arctic states uh, have agreed to 
settle any disagreements uh, within the framework of international law. Uh, looking back at the Lulisat Declaration of 2008, for example, renewed by the eight Arctic states in, in 2018. And also, also all the, the Arctic states are you know, strong proponents of, of UNCLOS, uh, the UN Convention of the Law of the Seas, which really provides the frame, framework for international law in this area. And even though the US uh, has not ratified the, US, the treaty, yeah. <laughs> it will live up to its obligation, which is, it's, uh, which is hugely important. Yeah. And you know, looking at the Arctic, this is, this is an ocean. You know, if you look at the sort of high circumpolar Arctic, right. uh, even though it's still covered by ice mostly, it is an ocean and it is regulated by, by the law of the seas. Uh, so there is a well-functioning, established legal framework. There is a governance framework when it comes to many of the issues uh, through the Arctic Council on uh, cooperation on research, for example, on uh, oil spill preparedness and right. uh, emergency preparedness. Uh, there is a well-functioning cooperation between the, the Coast Guard and the search and rescue services, even though some of the mill-to-mill -mill cooperation has been uh, suspended after 2014. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, you know, this whole narrative of the, of the unregulated sort of Wild West Arctic is, uh, you know, very unfounded. In, uh, yeah, exactly right. So we have this defined legal regime where even as, you know, more military structures and units go up there and, and U.S. aircraft carriers travel above the Arctic Circle to, to train and, and work with allies. At the same time, there is a way to deal with problems and challenges through the existing legal regimes. And that brings us to, to the Arctic Council, which, you know, at this point is nearly 25 years old. It has a rotating chairmanship. Every two years, a new country takes over. Iceland has it now, and then the Russians will take over in May of 2021. And I'd note that they haven't, they haven't had the chairmanship since the 2006-2007 timeframe. Their chairmanship ended with them planting a flag on the, the North Pole sea bottom. What do you expect from a Russian chairmanship, and, and could there be some sorts of surprises or anything? It, it is true that, that Putin has taken a, a personal interest in Arctic development and, and Arctic securitization. What, what are you all planning for and thinking of for the, the next chairmanship in, in the Arctic? Well, first of all, I would say that the Arctic Council has been a, a resounding success story. For, for the last 25 years. And it's really provided a format for discussing a lot of the, the developments that we are seeing in the region and, and how, to, how to meet them, uh, mm -hmm. especially you know, research on climate change. And that has been really, really important. And even though the sort of geopolitics are in a sense see, seeping into to the region, the work and the cooperation within the council as such has really been ongoing uh, throughout all of this. The working groups, for example, sort of on the practical issues uh, are working very well. And I would say that the Russian approach to uh, the Arctic Council is generally pragmatic and constructive. Good. This is an, a format where they uh, engage in a, in a constructive way. They haven't released their priorities for their chairmanship yet. They will take over from, from Iceland next year. Mm -hmm. But I expect that to continue. You know, traditionally, Russia has been also a strong proponent of, uh, of the law of the seas, for example. Yeah. And we need to remain attentive 
to the military developments, as I also also said. But yeah. we also need to recognize that Russia is, you know, by far the biggest Arctic actor, sort of. Of course. By definition, given their <laughs> geography. Yeah. And that means that they have a lot of legitimate interests in the region as such. Yeah. And not everything that is happening is sort of scary or, or uh, very suspicious. Yeah. So uh, I expect a, a um, constructive Russian chairmanship. I wouldn't say we, you know, we've had no signals uh, to the opposite. Yeah. We're very happy with the priorities of, of the Icelandic chairmanship. They are very well aligned with, uh, with Norway's priorities when it comes to the importance of the oceans, for example, sustainable development of, of ocean resources as one key example. So, um, no, I, I hope and believe that all the Arctic actors will continue to engage constructively in the Arctic Council. And I think it's really interesting. Of course, the Arctic Council consists of the eight Arctic states. And, but there was a push earlier in the last decade bringing all of these observer states in. And of course, every country, it seemed like in the world, started to think about what's their Arctic strategy. As the ice melts, oh my gosh, you know, we have to have an Arctic strategy. So you have countries like far away from the Arctic as India and Singapore as Arctic observer states. But by far, of course, the biggest one is China. And China has called itself a near Arctic state and over the years, they've talked about how, oh, we need to make it a zone of, of international ownership or something like that. And they have started sending their snow dragon icebreaker across the pole. And they've, they've created this new polar silk road as, as part of their Belt and Road Initiative. Now, of course, you know, Norway and China have never had a, a tight relationship, but, but there's been big Chinese investments throughout the, the Arctic, in Greenland, in Iceland, even talk a couple of years ago of, of some Chinese businessman buying a big chunk of Svalbard, right? What is your assessment of, of China's priorities? What are they doing here? And what are they looking for? A few words on, on the Arctic Council. Uh, of course, there, there are a lot of observers to the Arctic Council now. Yeah. Some of them located uh, further from, from the Arctic than, uh, than others. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that this sort of global interest in the region shows the global importance of the region. Yeah. Not least when it comes to the developments related to climate change and the sort of interface between global developments and developments in the Arctic, which of course go both ways, but where accelerating uh, ice melting uh, on Greenland, for example, or changing weather patterns can have huge global impact. Mm -hmm. So I think it is natural that also outside observers want to be exactly that, observers and sort of partake in uh, the structures that are established. Certainly. And our approach has been one where we, we welcome the outside engagement uh, mm -hmm. as long as they respect the established governance structures uh, and respect the legal frameworks and, and functioning frameworks that exist in the region. And I would say that so far, all actors, uh, including China, have been doing that. Right. There are no such thing as a near-Arctic state. Either you're an Arctic <laughs> state or you're not. But because there is a growing attention being given to, to China's growth, or, or in, not only in the Arctic, but on the global level. Of course. Which is, which is natural, uh, yeah. I, I would say. We would have that same approach when it comes to, to China as well. As long as they play by the rules, they are welcome to engage in the region. But looking at these, the examples you mentioned, yeah. I would argue that when you look at the sort of concrete uh, outcomes of 
the interests from the Chinese side in the region. Uh, they are perhaps fewer and, and further between than a lot of the hype and the attention that has been created. Right. Uh, China has invested heavily, of course, in, in the Russian energy sector uh, in the high north, in, yes. in uh, the Yamal uh, LNG fields and, and Novotech and, and all those projects. But looking sort of across the, the Arctic region outside Russia, it's farther between the examples of, of concrete presence and investments. So I think we, we need to look at the, at the facts because a lot of attention has been given to, to some of these examples, but not that many projects have really materialized on the ground. Right. And I would also argue that the Arctic states are more aware of the uh, potential challenges with a uh, substantial Chinese presence or investments in the region as such. You've seen that in Greenland with the Danish uh, government, for example, coming in with, with major investments. We've seen a renew or a, an increased tension in, uh, in Iceland and also here in Norway, yeah. uh, where I would say in, in the public debate and also in, uh, in the public sphere, it's a, you know, a much more mature discussion as to the potential on the one side for investment and engagement, to weighing that towards the, the challenges potentially from, from such a presence. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would say we are, we are more uh, attentive to, to the challenges. Uh, I think that's right. So sure. the other hand, we, we don't want to block out all engagement as long as it's by the book. So. Yeah, of course. And uh, certainly the Chinese attention has also drawn attention from the American administration and, and a big part of Secretary of State Pompeo's speech when he was in Helsinki for the Arctic Council meeting was about pushing back on Chinese actions and, and aggression. And I think perhaps it's, it's interesting that, that it took outsiders like, like China to get America to focus on the Arctic. Because I think that for many years, we often forget that the, here in the United States, we forget we're an Arctic state. Mm. It's not a part of our culture like it is in Norway or even in Russia. It's a, a long way away from Washington. Alaska is a long way away and we don't think about it that much. And if we do, it's only about, oh, occasionally there's some, some oil drilling or, or something like that up there. And, and, or, you know, it's this pristine environment. It's not some place where a huge population lives or, or people think about it that much. So it is, it has been different over the last several years to see American attention turning to the Arctic. Of course, President Obama was the first president to, to visit above the Arctic Circle in, in Alaska, and now Secretary Pompeo and, and other stuff. It's been interesting and important, I think, to have American attention focused there. What more can America do working with allies and to build a more, a stronger partnership in the Arctic? What, what, would, you, what would Norway like to see from the United States in, in the years going forward? Uh, what more should we be doing? Well, first of all, I, we welcome the renewed American attention to the region. I think that is important. Uh, it's important that uh, our big allies steps up and, and sort of uh, is, is present and, and visible and uh, knowledgeable about the region. It is a region of, of strategic importance by force of, of geography uh, alone. No, one, one issue I think where Norway is, is, is very clear is that we are a strong proponent of, of multilateralism. You know, mm -hmm. we, we believe in multilateral solutions. So keeping 
the U.S. active and engaged in multilateral formats uh, is uh, important for us. It really provides the alliance, the, the, the like-minded group with uh, the necessary sort of leadership and, uh, and the clout. One area where, uh, of course, we, we disagree with the current uh, U.S. administration is, is uh, on the climate change issues and policies yes. to fight climate change. Yes. Uh, that is an, uh, an issue where, which has huge importance and huge consequences in the Arctic. Yes. And where we are, we are hoping for, uh, for U.S. Uh, re-engagement uh, and, uh, and, uh, and strong, strong policies. Yeah. We are, as I also mentioned, very happy with the developments uh, that have been taking place in uh, the renewed U.S. attention on the security and military side uh, in the North Atlantic, for example. Yeah. Uh, the Joint Forces Command in, in Norfolk, the Second Fleet. Yeah. So I think the so on the security sides uh, side we are uh, strong. We are part. welcoming developments, and it's, it's a strong dialogue and sort of exchange of information and uh, a joint approach. So, but I hope really you know, on a more general level, I would say that having been able to maintain the Arctic as a region characterized by cooperation and dialogue for the last 25 years since the end of the cold war yeah well i think that we need to maintain that as a community of, of arctic nations and, and stakeholders even though we recognize the fact that sort of more hard security elements will have to be part of that equation yeah. so you know for the last three decades we've had the luxury of being able to to only focus on the positive uh, aspects, on the sort of cooperation formats. And we need to maintain that approach, even though we, the other things are, are increasingly important as well, or sort of resurfacing uh, as an issue for the region. Yeah. So remaining the commitment to, to multilateral cooperation in the Arctic is, is something that we hope all Arctic states and stakeholders will. Uh, I think that, that's a good, uh, a good point to make. And you talked about engagement on climate change. And of course, we, we couldn't agree more at the American Security Project. Climate change is, is one of the, the real long-term threats that we all face together. And there's nowhere to see this more than in the Arctic, where the ice has melted faster than anybody predicted and, and the consequences are there. What I think is interesting is that the fact that the ice has melted has allowed it to become an area where there's increased industrialization and increased extraction. You know, if we talk about oil and energy resources coming out. You know, the United States has, has tried drilling offshore and, and there is going to be a, a push for more drilling in the American Alaskan Arctic. But it is kind of ironic that climate change is opening up this area for resource extraction, for something that causes climate change. Pulling more oil out of the ground and burning more oil will cause more climate change. So there could be, in the future, increased pushes to make, make the Arctic less of a zone of industrialization and resource extraction. Meanwhile, of course, I know Norway has been increasing resource extraction, increasing oil, uh, oil production in their Arctic. And, and every, every nation has a right to do that and has, has all, all of the Arctic nations have, have explored for oil in the last 10 years. What, what does Norway think about the possibility of you know, going towards some sort of reduced resource extraction in, in the Arctic? Well, I, you point to a core dilemma, of course, but I would also argue that it's, it's important to remember that 
the climate change that we see in the Arctic is you know, not being driven by emissions from the Arctic, mostly. Of course. But the, the, the question of extraction is, is a very... Um, from the Norwegian perspective, we are, we are seeing, of course, the, the long-term trends. Uh, we are sort of in... This government has been very clear on the need to, to modernize our energy sector, to have more electricity, uh, mm-hmm. for example. And striking that right balance between extracting the resources and protecting the area has been you know, at the core of our policies for, for decades. Yeah. And finding the right balance between protection and sustainable development. Because as I, as I said initially, this is a place where you know, people live in yeah. Norway. That means they, yeah. have to have, yeah. they have to have jobs. Yeah. We have to build infrastructure for them. That's right. You know, we have to, to create communities where they want to live and sort of bring up their kids and, and send them to school or, or university. Yeah. So I think we, you know, looking at the general trends in Europe, for example, uh, the question of the Euro- European Green Deal, mm-hmm. the green shift uh, in the economy. For Norway, we believe that, for example, Norwegian natural gas is going to be part of that bridge Sure. transitioning into a fully renewable future. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's an area where, where huge changes have been happening very fast. Also uh, increasing uh, renewable production in the form of, uh, of uh, marine wind farms, for example. Yeah. This is being discussed in Norway right now. Huge potential uh, in the medium to, to long term. And also there is a question of whether or not the, the market dynamics will drive some of this, this shift. If you look at prospects for oil extraction in the, in the Arctic going back 10 years with the, the oil prices that were then, yeah. they were much more, more ambitious than they are right. today. That's right. So several projects have, of course, been, been stopped and so, or at least suspended for the foreseeable future. So there is a, you know, a dynamic here, which is you know, commercially market-driven as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Well, as, as we're coming to a close here, we, we often like to, to say at ASP that, that we think about not what's in the headlines today, but what's going to be in the headlines five or 10 years from now. Thinking about the Arctic for as long as we have, that's clearly been a, a, a way of thinking. What, what would you lead, leave us with, you know, our, our mostly American audience? What would you leave us with as, as a headline or something that we should all be working for in the next, say, five or 10 years with regards to the Arctic? I think I would like to, to return to my point on the need to maintain the multilateral cooperation on files, so to say, where that is possible, yeah. uh, even as a more security-oriented geopolitical situation sort of seeps into to the region. Yeah. That can be, I think, confidence building uh, in itself and help to maintain you know, low tension uh, in the region. Yeah. So we need to, to continue working on the things that have been working. For example, in the Arctic Council, when it comes to, to uh, fighting climate change, when it comes to, to research and these uh, emergency preparedness measures, and maintaining a belief that we can continue to, to engage and to maintain that dialogue. Yeah going forward. So it's, it's not a very sexy headline, I have to admit. But, uh, I, I, we, we love multilateralism. I, th- I think multilateralism is, is as sexy as geopolitics gets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, State Secretary Auden Halverson, thanks for being with us. This was great. Thank you for having me on the podcast.